raise one hand. Okay. If you're not thoroughly awake, stand up and do ten jumping jacks. No, you can't. You're awake. I am not a morning person. And it doesn't matter how early I get up, you know, the brain just doesn't switch on until, like, noon. So, uh, this morning we'll be looking in John chapter 3. And uh, the title of my message this morning is The Joy of Losing. Uh, How many of you just love to lose? Anybody? That's a couple back there. Uh, You know, probably none of us really cherish losing. Uh, and uh, to be honest, I really don't like this title. I was trying to think of a better title. And, you know, um, one of the most agonizing things of all of preaching is coming up with the title for your message. I spend more time trying to figure the title out. And, you know, I wish that what I really should do is do like they did it back in the old days. If you've read titles of sermons back in the 1800s, they had like these paragraph long titles. Like, you know, the discussion of John the Baptist's dealings with Jesus and the uh, coming of the uh, Son of God as the Messiah. You know, that's like the title. And, you know, we've decided that you can't remember those. It kind of went with, back in the old days, they named their organizations the same way. You know, the, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel to the ends of the world for peoples of all tongues and tribes for the ends of all times. And it's like abbreviated, titi tabi habi wabi do, you know. Um, so we don't do that. We like, we like to get right to the point. So I, I really like this title particularly. But it's true that there's a certain part about the Christian life that is about losing. Uh, Jesus said, unless you lose your life for my sake, you cannot gain it back. And there certainly is something about what the gospel does in our life that in a sense makes us a loser. Uh, but we, what we lose... For Christ, we gain back a thousand times over. And uh, this morning we're looking at this passage, and I picked this because uh, of the situation of John the Baptist and his disciples uh, really felt that their ministry was losing ground. Uh, they felt perhaps like they were failing. And so we want to uh, pick up the story and really see how they dealt with this, this situation. So let's look and we'll read through John chapter 3, starting at verse 22. Afterward, Jesus and his disciples left for Jeru- left Jerusalem, but they stayed in Judea for a while and baptized there. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing near Anon, near Salim, because there was plenty of water there, and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was put into prison. At that time, a certain Jew began an argument with John's disciples over ceremonial cleansing. Afterward, John's disciples came to him and said, Teacher, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you said was the Messiah, he is also baptizing people, and everybody is going over there instead of coming to us. John replied, God in heaven appoints each person's work. You yourselves know how plainly I told you that I am not the Messiah. I am here to prepare the way for him, that is all. The bride will go where the bridegroom is. A bridegroom's friend rejoices with him. I am the bridegroom's friend, and I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Um, 
John the Baptist had been baptizing. We don't really know for how long. Uh, and it's rather interesting, the first time we encounter him, he's, he's baptizing at the Jordan River. He's uh, picked up uh, his tent and moved to actually a much more remote wilderness area. There's a couple of possibilities. Archaeologists tell us where this could be, but it was probably north of Jerusalem, in or near the, the area or province of Samaria. And um, he is baptizing there, and his ministry, quite simply, is losing. Okay, and this is a great picture of losing, of failing, of a ministry that's going down the tubes. Okay? And this is why. There's several reasons. First of all, uh, it says that Jesus also had been in Jerusalem. He cleared out the temple. He'd been teaching there, doing miracles and signs. Uh, and it says that Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside. Interestingly, it says that all this took place before John was put in prison. Now, if you're like really sharp, you're going, well, yeah, duh, because he wouldn't like be out there baptizing if he was in prison. More likely, you know, John's not really trying to just state the obvious. He's really using this as a time marker. Uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begin Jesus' ministry after John is put in prison. So this is significant to show, and I think John was aware of the, what was written in the Synoptics, and he was saying, Look, what I'm talking about here is a part of Jesus' life and ministry that took place before all that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, so, so he gets this picture of Jesus going out, ministering in Jerusalem, going out into the Judean countryside, and there it says that Jesus is baptizing. Also, a, a truth or a fact uh, only found in the, in the Gospel of John. Uh, it's the only reference we have that Jesus had any kind of a baptizing ministry. And uh, so here's the picture. Get this, you know, John the Baptist invented this model of ministry. Uh, this baptism thing, while the Jews did practice baptism, none of them practiced it the way John did. For a, a Jew, they saw baptism as an initiation rite for a Gentile who wanted to become a convert to Judaism. But John's baptism was unique in that he was calling all Jewish people to a baptism of repentance that they would confess their sins, they would confess they were in, in error of God's ways, that they would con, uh, confess those, that they would change their ways and turn back to God, and as a mark of that would be baptized. Uh, he didn't do it in Jerusalem. He didn't do it in the temple. Instead, he goes out to the far remote wilderness places and he has this kind of wilderness ministry. Uh, you know, I've never read a, a book on church planting, on st strategic ministry, that would tell you to do this. It would be like, go where there's no people, get as far away from any large cities you can, don't tell anybody where you are. If people find you, move. Okay? If they find you in, in, in the Jordan River, move somewhere else. Okay? So make it as difficult as possible. When they get out there, tell them they're scum sinners and they're all going to hell unless they repent and get saved. And then when they do, dunk them. You know, just hold them underwater. Okay, and you'd be amazed at how successful that is. Well, you know, it worked for John. And people flocked out to him. They went out by the thousands to hear his message, to be baptized. And it was not an easy trip. It was not a short trip. It, was, it took a commitment of time and effort. But these people were going out by the droves to hear John preach and to be baptized. Well, so John moves to this area where there's these springs or there's lots of water. And uh, Jesus says, you know, this is a pretty good model for ministry. I like this. 
It's working well for John. I think I'll try it for a while. And so Jesus moves out to an area very near John. In fact, they were probably, in, in the same, doesn't say exactly, but it, it's very likely that Jesus was in a very close proximity to John. And Jesus begins doing the exact same thing. Now, you get, get the picture of this, okay? You're John, you're one of his disciples, say, and uh, your leader has pioneered this new technique of ministry that's going well, it's successful, things are growing, people are following you, people are flocking, you're feeling, yeah, this is good. You are feeling successful. You go, man, I like this ministry. I'm sold out. I'm committing my life to John because he's obviously gifted by God and he's doing a good thing. Well, all of a sudden, this other guy comes along and he starts copying exactly what you're doing of all the nerve. And not only that, but, you know, John was a good teacher. He was a good Bible, you know, prophet. But this other guy, he, like, does miracles. That's a total unfair advantage. He's, like, healing the lame. He's giving sight to the blind. He's casting out demons. I mean, he puts on a good show. And, uh, you know, John, he just preaches, you know, a lot. And he eats grasshoppers. And uh, as fun as that is to watch, it just doesn't have the same impact as a guy who's like, you know, giving sight to the blind and healing lepers. And so uh, it's tough competition. And to make matters worse, this guy moves in like right across the street, you know, with his ministry. And what happens? Well, pretty soon the crowds, you know, attendance is dropping, the offering, offering is dropping, the little chart on the wall, you know, is going down. And, uh, and you're starting to, you know, John's disciples are starting to feel bad about this. And they're, they're not happy about this. Uh, it says also that uh, the Jews were coming out, and it says that one Jew in particular doesn't name him, but came out and was disputing with John's disciples about ceremonial cleansing. That doesn't say what their dispute was or what it was about. But John's baptism was viewed by the Jews as a form of ceremonial cleansing. And uh, whether it was rightly interpreted or not, uh, they really saw what John was doing was uh, a means of offering a washing through baptism, through repentance. And uh, not everybody really bought into this, this strategy or his message. And the Jews came out on a number of times. Uh, we saw this in John chapter 1. And they kept questioning John about what he was doing. And uh, so these disciples find not only are people leaving and there's this new teacher who's just doing it much better, but their own uh, religious leaders and uh, superior, superiors, if you will, are coming out and questioning them and debating with them. What are you guys doing? You know, why, why are you out here? And so they're having to defend what they're doing and they're being largely misunderstood and criticized. And uh, we all know how that feels when what we're doing is misunderstood and we're criticized and uh, people are not uh, excited about it. You know, we're excited and they're going, this is dumb, you're doing the wrong thing, why are you doing this? So they were feeling bad about that. And it all finally came to a head and, and they were frustrated and discouraged. And, uh, you know, John just seems happy as ever. He smiles every day, he gets up every morning and he's all just praising God and you know, and, and, uh, and uh, he just goes out there, preaches like normal, every day fewer and fewer people. And finally the disciples just had enough of this. And they go to John and they say, John, don't you see what's happening here? That, that guy, that one you said was the Messiah. Notice they don't even use his name. Just call him that guy, the Messiah dude. You know, you, uh, you, he's stealing all of our people. 
He is robbing us of our ministry. He's, I mean, we're, it's going down the tubes here. What are you going to do about it, John? And, uh, you know, what is John supposed to do about it? Well, interestingly, uh, what these guys felt as an emotion is a, an issue that every one of us will deal with. If we haven't dealt with it yet, we're probably just in denial, okay? And uh, you certainly you will deal with it. And it's the, it's the issue or problem of jealousy and envy. And, you know, uh, we could, we could kind of look back at, at, the, you know, at the other end of history at this event and go, well, it's kind of, be, kind of weird to be jealous of Jesus. But the truth is that they didn't know who Jesus was yet. Um, John had witnessed that he was the Messiah, but, you know, maybe they weren't obviously convinced of that. Uh, and regardless of the fact, they were jealous. And they were envious of somebody else's ministry being more successful than theirs. Especially since it meant really the, the dropping off, the decrease, uh, the failure of their own ministry. And they were threatened by that. They felt bad by that. And the reality is that if we were in their shoes, probably all of us would feel those same emotions. We would feel the same sense of bitterness and unhappiness and anger that somebody else is being more successful than us especially when it's at our expense, right? Uh, we all know what we would say if we were in that position. And we may all say it for different reasons, but we know that if we were there, we would be feeling a certain amount of envy. Um, it's interesting, the definition of envy is this. To be envious is, to fe- is a feeling of bitterness, be- feeling bitter and unhappy because of another's advantages, possessions or success. Feeling bitter and unhappy at somebody else's advantages, possessions or success. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that? Another part of the definition is being possessive. Demanding exclusive loyalty or adherence. That's where these guys were. They wanted people to be loyal to their teacher John. They were loyal to their teacher John. And for this other guy to be stealing, you know, stealing sheep, it's against the rules. If you've, if you've ministered and worked in Thailand very long, if you've worked with the National Church here, you know that the, the greatest sin, the unforgivable sin, is stealing sheep. You know, you can do anything, but if you steal, you know, members from somebody else's church, it's a serious crime here. Okay? And certainly in any place, uh, it, can, it can create these feelings of envy and of jealousy. Um, but it goes into many circles. You know, I think one of the first times I remember experiencing these feelings was in grade school or maybe middle school when, um, you know, you belonged to the popular group and somehow you got your way in with, like, the, the, the cool guy, you know, the, the guy that everybody liked. And you, you know, somehow kind of weaseled your way into this group even though you were a nerd. That was me anyway. I was the nerd. I was not the cool guy. But somehow I faked it well enough that I got into this group finally. And then, lo and behold, some new cooler kid comes into school who makes, you know, the cool guy look not so cool anymore, and everybody abandons ship and goes over to that cool guy. And you feel like, man, I, I just finally got in the group, and now the group left. And now I'm just with another loser. And it's bad. Um, you know, and, and it goes on. In high school, I remember uh, feeling this when, uh, when other kids would get picked uh, for, you know, class office or for... Uh, some team or some organization and you got left out and you feel envious that that person 
got what you wanted. They were successful. They were picked. Um, you know, we often think of envy or jealousy in terms of guy-girl relationships. And, you know, that's how it is. When the guy or girl you like, uh, you know, and kind of shows interest in you, and you think, oh, this is going to be good, and then all of a sudden along comes somebody they like better, and they ditch you to leave them. And you want to go, like, beat that guy up because you feel envious. You know, this is my girlfriend. This is my boyfriend. How dare you take them away, right? And we feel that sense of envy, that bitterness, that they are being more successful and they're getting what you want. Um, it would be great to say that as we turn into adults, these things fade away from us, but uh, they, they get worse. The interesting thing is I think that in our day and age, uh, we hide envy very well. And uh, we kind of cloak it and disguise it. And oftentimes it's so subtle we're not even aware of it in our own life. Um, I know as a pastor, uh, if you're talking to me about envy, I can talk to you about envy of people in church. This is how it works for pastors. Again, I'm, I'll give you my confession here of how this works. Envy in my own life. Um, you know, when people... Well, here's how it worked the first time I experienced this. When I first planted a church in southwest Colorado, started with 12 people. Within a year, it grew from 12 people to 150. Okay, huge explosive growth. Uh, and this church was kind of, I mean, it was kind of a John the Baptist approach. This church was at the end of the world. Okay, it was 10 miles from a town of 800 people. Okay, when we went out there, I thought there was like five houses on the road between the town and our church. I thought, man, if we get 10 people to come to our church, it'll be a miracle. But here's what happened. I was this new guy. I was young. I was perceived as cool and like, you know, cutting edge. And word got out that like there was this cool new church. And so instantly, it just took off. And I thought that felt pretty good. I thought, this is cool. I like this. But the problem with that kind of growth is that uh, it only lasts as long as you're the cool guy, which for me doesn't last very long. <laughs> you know, that's, people figure out real quick, well, you're not that cool. And uh, there like, comes along another cooler guy, church with better worship bands, whatever. And pretty soon, you know, like 145 of them went to another church. Oh, not quite that many, but... You know, pretty soon, they're leaving as fa faster than they're coming. And what, what, as, a, as a pastor, what do you feel? Well, I'm not the cool guy anymore. I'm not special anymore. I am, and you feel it, you feel like you are a loser. Our church isn't working. And so you feel jealousy. You feel envious towards the cool guy that's taking all your people. You want to go, like, slash his tires on his car. And, you know, like, you know... Jerry Rigg, you know, sabotages pulpit. So, like, you know, it just swallows him whole in the middle of Sunday morning. Um, and, you know, there's, the truth is that in churches, especially in the West, it's very competitive. And uh, if somebody comes up with a lot better worship band or a lot better uh, program, a lot better services, better youth ministry, uh, you know, a lot of times the fact is that the other guy's just funnier than you are. And pretty soon people think you're boring and they think they're more entertaining. And so they leave and you feel envious. Um, and of course, nobody ever tells the pastor the truth. Nobody ever says, we're leaving your church because you're just not funny enough. And the guy down the road is really funny. Okay? Uh, instead, they say things like, well, we've been praying and we feel God leading us. It's God's will that we leave your church because you're a loser. 
and go somewhere else. So then you not only feel envious because of that other pastor, but you feel mad at God because he's making you be a loser, right? Now, I wish I could say that I was making all this up. I'm not. This is honestly how I felt oftentimes uh, when people leave or when people uh, are attracted to other churches or ministries. And the truth and the reality is it's, 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 it's my own human flesh being jealous, being envious. You know, and when people leave uh, and I feel that way, I'm not thinking, man, I really hope that that, that other church will bless and encourage them and help them grow more in Christ. You know, that's, that's not what I'm thinking and that's not my perspective. But the reality is maybe they do need to go to that other church. Maybe I've taught them, you know, in my, my five minutes worth, I taught them all I know. And God wants to teach them other things in other places. Uh, but when I'm envious and jealous, I don't have that perspective because it's about me and how I feel and how it makes me look when people uh, leave. And that's exactly what John's disciples were feeling. Look at how it makes us look, John, when you know, everybody's leaving our ministry and it's shrinking and people are showing up going, man, we thought this was like a big deal, but there's like 12 people here and no food. And like, man, you guys are losers. And, and they're thinking, don't you see how this makes us look bad, feel bad? And so that's why they were frustrated. Um, and it's interesting, a lot of churches respond to that pressure of jealousy and envy by trying to be more competitive, trying to get better worship teams, better programs, more youth programs, you know, a funnier pastor, or a better looking one at least, or whatever. And there's a lot of pressure uh, to compete. And, uh, and, and that's what John's disciples were feeling. And that's the way the world does things. You know, I don't know if you live down on the Hongdong end of the, the town. You know, they're building a new big sea down there. And we're counting the days till it opens. And, um, and, you know, Lotus, I don't know, I'm sure they found out what was happening. And so about six months ago, you know, they completely remodeled Lotus and made it just oh, squeaky clean and nice. Why did they do that? Well, they felt the pressure of competition. And they wanted to upgrade and improve so that they don't lose customers. That's the way the, the world works, and we think that's how it should work with us. It's not true in churches. It's also true in any area of life. Denominations and organizations do the same thing. Uh, you know, they feel great allegiance and pride in their organization. And here's the deal. Oftentimes we join these groups and organizations. For John's disciples, maybe they hitched their wagon with John because it gave them an identity. You know, the reason I wanted to be with the cool guy in high school or middle school or whatever is because I was a nerd. But if I could be at least friends with the cool guy, it would elevate me a bit. So I'd be only like half a nerd. And I would be like semi-cool because I was with cool people, right? And that's what oftentimes we, we, we belong. We want to belong to something that elevates us, that makes us feel a little more important, that makes us feel a little more significant. Uh, than our small kind of life, if we can be a part of something bigger, cooler, more successful, it gives us an identity that matches with that. Um, when that organization or that group is no longer being as successful as we think or is losing the competition, people are abandoning ship and, and moving to another organization, another ministry, another denomination, what do we feel? We feel jealous. 
If another group is, you know, if you're doing church planting and all of a sudden another group moves in and they plant twice as many churches, how do you feel? You feel jealous and envious. Um, you can go on down the list. It's true for parents. Uh, you know, we take pride in our children. Kids, you may not believe this, but your, children, your parents are very proud of you. Uh, they just want to tell you that because they don't want you to, like, all go to your head. Um, but parents are very proud of their children. And I remember as a parent, you know, when my kids didn't get picked, when the teacher didn't think my child was actually a genius and was competing for Einstein, I was just insulted because I knew how smart and gifted my kids were. Uh, when, when they don't, you know, when the coach doesn't play your kid, like plays all the other kids and your kid just gets left on the bench, you think, man, what a dumb coach. You know, it's no wonder they lost. Because my kid would have scored 10 goals if they'd have been out there. Bad coaching, right? We feel jealous. We feel envious. And that kid that scored all the goals, he wouldn't just go like, beat up his dad, you know. It's like, my kid should be out there being the star, right? Have you felt those things? All right. See, that's envy. And the reality is that it is, it is something every one of us will deal with. And much like John's disciples... It is something that will rob us ultimately of joy and delight in life if we let it creep in. Because the reality is uh, we will not always win the competition. We will not always be the best. We will not always be the star of the show. And really, God doesn't want us to be, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, What really makes us so envious of others? Where does this come from? Well... It comes certainly from pride. It comes from this need to be the best. And if somebody looks better than us, we feel that it makes us look bad. So the way to solve that is to make sure others aren't as successful as us, to be the one who wins. And it fosters within us this very fiercely competitive spirit. Okay? Now, I don't know if this is just... Definitely it's a guy thing, okay? I know it's a guy thing. I don't know if it's a lady thing so much. Maybe ladies are not quite as competitive. I don't know. I know for a lot of us guys, we feel this instant sense of competition. Uh, And if you meet somebody who works in your sphere of expertise, instantly, you know, pride kind of inches up. And we want to assert that we're smarter, we're better, we've done it longer, we're more experienced, and we feel this, this competition. Guys are great at this, okay? That's why guys just don't make friends real quick and easy. Because we instantly feel a certain measure of threat to somebody who may be a competitor. Um, We seek and long for glory and fame. Uh, There is within us a desire to be popular. Okay? And if people are flocking to us, it builds our ego. It makes us feel good. And that's why, you know... Everybody wants to be an American idol or somebody's idol. You know, why everybody wants to be a pop star. Okay, because they think if everybody, you know, if I'm famous, that's got to feel really good. That's got to make me really happy. Uh, They don't realize that when you look at every pop star out there, they're like the least happy people in the world. And there's nothing about their lives that's particularly happy just because they're popular. But, you know, we think wrongly that fame will make us happy. Uh, it's why people want to be, you know, uh, heads of organizations. They want to be the top because they think if I'm the main leader, everybody will be focused on me and I'll be famous and popular and, uh, man, that's going to feel good. They don't realize that when you're in front, all it means is people 
know who to throw stuff at. You know, when things go wrong, you're the one they're going to nail. All right? But we don't think of it that way. Um, a lot of people hunger for this because they want to have influence and control over other people. They think if I'm successful, people are drawn to me, I'll have influence over them, I can, I can have control, I can be in charge, and that's got to feel good. And that would make me really happy to be bossing other people around. Uh, little do we know that you boss them around doesn't mean they do what you say, okay, which is kind of frustrating. Um, all of those things are needs that God has put in us. Um, and the problem is not the need itself. Uh, at the root of it, many of these things for significance to have a life that makes a difference, to have influence in other people's life, even the desire for glory, are not in and of themselves evil things. They ultimately are things that God has put in us. God has created us for glory. God has created us for community and to be recognized and affirmed by other people. The problem is that we seek to meet those needs and fulfill those needs by a human plan, not a divine plan. And ultimately, we seek to meet those needs on our own grounds for our own selfish glory and fulfillment, apart from God's glory. And that's where things break down and where there becomes a problem. Uh, it wasn't wrong for John's disciples to want John's ministry to be successful. There was no sin in that. There was no sin in wanting the ministry that John had to be growing and expanding and doing well. But the sin is that they wanted that for their own glory, to make themselves look good, uh, to stroke their own ego and pride, not to bring glory to God. And so because of that, they were having a conflict here and a struggle. But John did not have that struggle. Uh, John was not bothered in the least by this. And John models and teaches uh, marvelously how we ought to deal with envy. Uh, his answer for dealing with the sin of envy that can so easily creep into our life. And this is what he says. John's answer for envy. He gives a couple uh, simple principles that governed his life that allowed John to be totally joyful as he watched his ministry just, you know, go down the tubes. As he watched the crowds leave him and go to Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, first, first of all, God in heaven appoints each person's work. Literally, uh, it's really not the best translation. It literally is, none of us, no man receives anything unless it comes from heaven. No one gets anything in their life unless it comes from God. Uh, the principle is simply this, that success is really a matter of calling, not competing. Okay? What, what John is saying here is that anything you get that's eternally successful, now, I believe we can make man-made success that's not necessarily from above. But he says any... any any true success that comes into our life, anything that has eternal impact or value that, that comes into our life, ultimately comes from God. It is by God's doing and God's calling. And John says, you know, I'm, I told you guys from the beginning, I'm not the Messiah. I am simply here to point people to him. I was called by God and sent out by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. To, in essence, bring people to a point where they could meet the true Messiah. 
So that was my job. That was what God had given me. And John says, you know, all these people, all these crowds that came out, didn't come out because I had good marketing strategy, uh, because, you know, I had a good billboard campaign, because I had brought good advertising on TV. Uh, John lived out this amazing principle that, you know, people came out here into the middle of nowhere simply because God brought them. And so every person that came into our ministry, guys, came because God brought them along. And not everybody who came and was a part of what they saw bought into it. A lot came and went away grumbling and complaining and not liking it. So the reality is only those who really got the baptism, really got the message, really got the point, they did that because it was God's doing, not mine. So every benefit that we've had, every fruit of our labor that we have, has come by God's doing, not ours. This is a great universal principle, and I would encourage you to just meditate on that concept. Everything in your life that you have, that's good and eternal, ultimately comes from God. It has tons of applications, but we're going to just look at how John applied it in his own life and situation. Um, we really are called to the same thing. God's calling upon you is unique and specific. God hasn't called any of us to be the Messiah. Hallelujah. None of us are responsible to save the world. Praise God. Okay, none of us are responsible ultimately to save anybody. That is God's work and God's business. But he's called each of us to have a part with him in his work. Uh, John knew his role. He knew what God had called him to. Do you know what God has called you to? For John, it was a very seasonal ministry. Uh, for you, God may call you to a season of ministry in a certain place. Whatever it is, whatever you're gifting, whatever you're calling, whatever he wants you to do, uh, he's called you to that. Additionally, God is the one who gives you opportunities. You know, right now you may uh, be called by God to minister through friendship to just one person. Maybe that's the opportunity God has brought into your life. Uh, God may have brought into your life uh, one simple job, one simple opportunity. And we are to be faithful with that one thing. You see, the calling comes from God, the opportunities that God sends come from God, and John understood that. And so John says, I don't need to compete with anything, because God's going to bring everything I need to be successful in his program. And so I don't have to compete with other people. The flip side is this. John was very aware of the fact that whatever God gave to Jesus also came from God. Whatever success belonged to another person or group or organization was not because they were better or because you know, they were cooler or because they were smarter, but it's because God sent it to them. You see, we're not in competition if God's the one orchestrating and organizing it all. This is a really crude, lame, probably lame illustration but I'm going to throw it out anyway. It's kind of like, you know, all-star wrestling. Okay? You're going, yeah, this, is, this doesn't make sense. Here's the deal. Like in a real competition, like, you know, real wrestling, or real boxing, or real anything, uh, you get out there and you compete, and you strive for all you're worth to beat the other person. But in, you know, all-star wrestling, it's scripted. And before you go in, you know who wins and loses. Some of you didn't know that. I'm sorry to like wreck the whole thing. 
but uh, it's true. You know, it's acting. It's not actually competing. And the guy who loses, loses because he gets paid a lot of money to act the part of the loser. Well, it's kind of like that. God has scripted it, and he has, with probably more credibility and integrity than all-star wrestling, has given us our role and our part. And our job is just to do our part. Okay? The real competition isn't between us and the other guys on the field. It's between us and the enemy, Satan. You see, as Christians, a lot of times we forget we actually are all on the same team. And the victory is won by Christ over Satan. Not our church or our organization or our mission or our group beating the other church or organization or mission or group. Okay, we're not in competition. We're actually on the same team. It's a good thing to remember. Um, so, so that's John's first principle. He says, realize we're not competing. We are simply doing what God called us to. We are fulfilling our role, our, our part in the script, if you will. And God has written this part for every person. If you are in Christ, God has called you to something, to touch somebody's life in some way. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. God has called you to touch somebody's life with his truth, to do what John did, to be a part of bringing somebody to Jesus, to moving them one step closer to meeting face-to-face with Jesus. Um, Secondly, John's second principle goes like this. He says, and he, uses, he teaches the second one by way of an illustration. He says, I am here to prepare the way for him. That's all. The bride will go where the bridegroom is. A bridegroom's friend rejoices with him. I am the bridegroom's friend. And I am filled with joy at his success. Uh, here's the picture. He says, first of all, it's very important to cast this in the light that for John, this was about finding joy and happiness. You know, envy, what makes us envious is that we feel somebody's going to rob us of joy and happiness. We feel if somebody else is more successful, looks better, does it better, if people leave us and go to them, that somehow that's going to diminish my joy. And that's really a lot of what's at the heart of it. And John says, no, my joy, what brings me complete and fulfilled joy is to be not the main guy, but the main guy's best friend. And he uses the picture of a wedding. He says, imagine, you know, that, uh, that you, your, your, your dear friend is getting married. And he invites you, says, you know, hey, Tim, I'm getting married. You know, this date, I want you to be the best man. So you show up at the, at the wedding, you're the best man. Now, the job of the best man is what? Uh, well, you know, to like kind of harass the groom a bit, you know, make it not too easy for him. Uh, but also to make sure that everything goes well, to be there as his friend, to assist him, to help him, to, to bring together he and his wife uh, with a happy occasion and celebration. But imagine this scenario. Imagine the best man shows up and he's going, man, your wife, she is hot. And, uh, you know, I think, I think I want to marry her. And so the best man starts hitting on the bride. And uh, before the wedding, he's like making all these moves, saying all these flowery things and and, uh, and the best man thinks, you know, I'm, I can't be happy unless I marry this woman. And so he starts competing with the groom for the bride. Now, what would you think about that kind of a guy? This is a loser. I mean, this is the lamest kind of guy you can imagine. Who would, that's awful. And that's exactly the picture that 
that John is painting here. He's saying, what kind of a best man would I be if I tried to steal the bride? That would be awful. That would be one of the most shameful things you could imagine. That would be evil. And he says, what kind of a person would do that? But the reality is, that's exactly what envy is. Envy is exactly that. Envy is the person who seeks for themselves the bride, the prize. Because they are convinced they can't be happy unless they get the girl at the expense of the groom. You see, when we compete with other people for glory, that is exactly what we're doing. John says, I am called by God not to be the the groom, but to be the best man. And my job is to make sure that the groom gets the bride. To do everything in my part to bring this couple together. And I find great joy in fulfilling that role as the best man. And you see, in this scenario, Jesus is the groom. And all those who are his beloved, all those that Jesus loves and calls to himself, is the bride. And our role is not to steal the glory. Our role is not to steal the show. Our role is not to take for ourselves these people and collect them to myself. See, the truth is a lot of times pastors get envious because they think the people in their church belong to them as some kind of prize or possession, like notches in their belt. And you see, when we do that, we are stealing the bride for ourselves. And it is evil. And it's interesting, when, uh, in the passage before, when Jesus talked with Nicodemus, he said, when the, when, the, when the light comes into the world, men hated the light because they loved the darkness. And they loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. And Jesus wasn't talking about prostitutes and drunkards and murderers. He was talking about people like Nicodemus. He was talking about self-righteous, holy, religious people who were stealing the bride for themselves, who were more concerned about their own glory and their own uh, success than they were about the success and glory of Jesus, of God the Father, the Creator. And John says that's a horrific thing to do. And the reality is that there's no joy in it. Well, I shouldn't say that. There is some joy in it. You know, for the guy who steals his best friend's wife, there is the promise of short-term joy. And there is, truthfully, not, I mean, I don't speak from experience, okay, but I'm guessing that there is some joy in, in conquering. Of going, you know, my, my friend, he thought he was going to marry that girl, but I, I won, and I got her. And there is some sense of pride and ego and, and fulfillment in doing that. But it doesn't last for very long because pretty soon the word gets out what you did and you're not famous anymore. You're a creep, you know. Nobody respects you. You know, the glory and fame and respect you thought you would get, it turns into scorn. And it turns into people looking at you going, what kind of a creep are you, right? And you see, that's what happens. Satan lies. He's lying to us. And he's telling us, if you get this stuff, it's going to make you feel good. It's going to make you happy. It does it for a few minutes. But then people realize what you did to cheat and steal and lie to get that success. And nobody's impressed with that. You know, sadly, I'm a track, I'm an avid track and field fan. And, uh, you know, every time I hear about steroids and blood doping and all this stuff, it just kills me. And, you know, recently, Marion Jones had to give back all of her gold medals because she admitted to... Um, whatever. 
using cheating. And all that glory is gone. And now instead of being a hero, she is looked down on with shame. You see, it doesn't last when we try to steal that glory for ourselves. But there's a better way. And that is to be not the guy that's the, the main guy, but to be the main guy's best friend. Uh, you know, the truth is, you and I have no lasting or significant identity on our own. Okay, if we go out and try to launch out on our own and create for ourselves an identity, the best we can hope for is that we are a creep, you know, a bride stealer and a loser. Okay, if we do it on our own, that's all we can hope for. Okay, how many want to go that route? Okay, nobody wants that route. Okay, there's no joy in that kind of losing. But we are invited to be best friends with and the best man of the best possible groom. The one who is worthy of all glory. And we are given the privilege of having an identity that comes through being his friend. By being associated with Jesus. I first experienced this when I was, this phenomenon, when I was about 14 years old. And uh, I, uh, my parents had been divorced. My dad kind of disowned me, um, my real dad. And uh, I was, at that time in my life, hungry and desperate for some man in my life who would affirm me. And I went on a, uh, a high school backpack trip, and the guy who led the trip was like this bigger-than-life guy. And he had been in the Navy. He was an older guy. He had been in the Navy, about 12, Navy for about 12 years, had, had fought most of that time in Vietnam. Uh, he had the best stories ever. I don't know, if, looking back on it, I, I'm sure most of it wasn't true, but at the time, I was convinced this guy was, like, amazing. Uh, while he was in the Navy, he had got in all kinds of trouble, ended up in jail, was on drugs, was not a believer. While he was in jail, he came to know Christ and God had done an amazing transformation in his life. And uh, I just looked up to this guy. I thought, you know, my life is this big, this guy's life is this big. I mean, he just had the coolest stories, was the coolest guy uh, was tough, was manly, like ate rocks. I mean, he's just a cool guy. And he was our backpack leader, and he'd hike these mountains, and I thought, man, this guy is awesome. And he was a Christian, and he loved God. And this guy had great influence in me, uh, partly just because of, the, as I saw him, the stature of his character, but also he took a real interest in me. And he uh, be, was, was very kind and very affirming, and I went on several trips with him, and he told me several times in front of other people, you know, I really have great respect for this young man. And I, you know, he put his arm around me, he took me under his wing. I mean, that just did huge things for me, personally. And for me, I had no identity at that time in my life, and, and I didn't want one. I, the only identity I wanted was being his friend. I mean, to be his right-hand guy was worth it all. And I remember I would have done anything for this guy. I mean, if he just said, you know, go climb to the top of some mountain and build a, you know, bring me down a boulder, I would have done it, one way or another. And it brought me great joy and delight to be his friend, to be respected by him, and to do anything I could to, to please him. Not because I wanted to earn his love, but just because I liked this guy so much, I knew he liked me, and I would do anything just to show my love and, and devotion to this, this brother, this friend. In fact, I went to the Bible college I went to because that's where he went. Kind of influence he had in my life. 
Uh, a few years later, actually as I was a senior, uh, last year at this Bible school, he came back and spoke in chapel. And he'd gone from like this big down to like about this, even like he shrunk. And uh, his role in my life had, had, had shrunk and I saw him as a real human being and that was a good thing. But that's what Jesus wants to be in our life. Jesus wants to be a figure bigger than life who we so admire and respect that the longing of our life would be simply to be his best friend. And he says, John says, I find great joy and delight in just serving the coolest dude in the world and giving my life to him. There, that, that's the greatest joy and fulfillment there is. Um, how wonderful is this Jesus? How big is he? He says, well, he says he must become less and less, I must become more and more, which is true in every relationship. We don't have time to go into that. Um, in every human relationship, we ought to become less as Jesus becomes more. As a pastor, I should become less and less of a role in your life as Jesus becomes more. If you're discipling somebody, you should become less and less important as Jesus becomes more. Okay? But John goes on to say this. He says about Jesus about this one who we get to be best friends with. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. I am of the earth, and my understanding is limited to earthly things. But he tells us what he has seen and heard because he has seen it firsthand in heaven. Sadly, how few believe what he tells them. Those who believe him discover that God is true, for he is sent by God, and upon him, um, I'm sorry, for he is sent by God, he speaks God's word, for God's spirit is upon him without measure or limit. The Father loves the Son and has given him authority over everything. All things are in his hands, and all who believe in the Son of God have eternal life. Uh, this is the best friend we get to be, hang out with. A friend who has everything. You know, it's good. I don't have really friends who are super wealthy. I would like to have some. And I would hang out with them a lot if I did. Because I, I really could use the money right now. But how much greater to be best friends with Jesus, who has everything. Who is the greatest of the great. Who is above everything. Lord Supreme. Uh, it would be cool to be right-hand man to a king or to a president, or to a Billy Graham. It would be cool to be right-hand man to somebody that great and significant. But we are invited by Jesus to be friends with the God of the universe, supreme above everything. And he says the simple cost of friendship is this, that you just have to believe in him. So for those who believe in the Son of God, they have eternal life we have this eternal friendship with him that will go on forever. But to those who refuse that friendship, who refuse to believe, who refuse to be the friend who would give the glory to the, to the groom, those people, he says, are still living under God's terrible wrath. Uh, you know, God offers us joy as his friend. And... Uh, that's what he wants you to be. Let's pray.
Father, I just pray that as we uh, reflect on this passage, we would, we would be honest about um, the feelings of envy and jealousy that sometimes creep into our life. And the truth is, this sin doesn't get a lot of publicity because it's not gory, and uh, it's really quite socially acceptable. In fact, we see it on the news and in TV shows every day, and it's really uh, more or less exalted as a good thing. But the truth is, it is an evil sin. Because we are jealous for glory that ultimately belongs to Jesus. We are envious of success that ultimately comes from you. And at the heart of it is our own pride and our own selfishness. Lord, instead, help us to substitute that kind of identity, that kind of pursuit of joy that's just a lie of Satan, for a joy that comes in being Jesus' best man, of being friends with the eternal God of the universe, who holds all things in his power in his hand, and in his hands, and invites us to be friends, to have an identity that comes from him, and to have a mission of simply bringing together Jesus with his beloved, to in every part of our life be living in such a way that we help people get closer to Jesus. And we would find great joy in that mission. Uh, and when it seems like we're, we're losing the fame and the glory, that it wouldn't matter. Because our glory and our fame is in Jesus. Lord God, we just praise you. And as we come into this time of worship now, we just want to exalt you as the one who is worthy of all praise, who is worthy of all glory. As we lift you up together and worship right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.